listening to the Game Sushi Doppers podcast. I'm James Batchelor, and this week I'm joined by Matt Handran, <laughs> Rebecca Valentine, Marie D'Alessandri, uh, Chris Dring. This week we will not be discussing the biggest news of the past week because that would basically be me talking about the fact that IO Interactive is making the James Bond game for an hour and I think the world has suffered enough in 2020. (laughs) So instead we are going to be talking about games of the generation but not quite in the way you might expect. Matt, this was your idea so I'm going to hand over to you to explain more and then we're going to go round the table. Uh, yeah, so I think we. I mean, Games and Stop Biz has already always struggled a little bit with stuff like this because we don't really review games or preview games. Like our opinion on games is not really an essential part of the voice of the site. Um, and but obviously it's fun to do it. We got new Xbox uh, out, new PS5 is out in Europe today, and was was out in North America and a few other places last week. So um, it seems appropriate for us to kind of look back and and at the generation just gone by, at least as it applies to those two two kind of console brands. And so we're going to do like a little mix. We'll we'll kind of run through what we see to be the most significant games of the generation. Um, significant games slash developers, I suppose, because there's a little bit of flexibility, but we're going to talk about the games we consider to be the most important, the games or companies or what have you that were the biggest disappointments to us, and then we'll finish on our favourites, because we rarely, rarely talk about anything positive on this podcast, and like, why not indulge indulge that side of it as well? Um, I think the only, the only thing to clarify here is we're kind of seeing the Switch as a different thing. The whole point of this is that there are two new consoles out, and it's looking back at the life cycle of the previous two consoles so while we're not going to be talking about exclusives we're going to be talking about products and developers that really kind of make their home on console even if they also publish elsewhere so that's like the main the main thrust of the idea indeedy as matt says we're going to start with our our uh, picks for most important game or, or most influential game um, and matt again since this is your idea i'm going to throw you in and <laughs> throw you in first um what would, what did you pick well, it's probably the most redundant um, one because last week we actually spent an hour talking about FIFA. Um, and, I, and then my pick is FIFA, I think. Um, I was looking back across all of the big franchises that sort of existed in 2013, sort of the start of this, uh, this generation that's just, just come to an end and, and kind of a still going at the end. And like for me, in so many different ways, FIFA seems to be the, the preeminent franchise among them. And you've seen, you know, Call of Duty has kind of wobbled a little bit, collapsing sales and so on. Well, not quite collapsing. I, actually, I think we had a story today about how it definitely isn't quite collapsing. But you know what I mean? It's kind of lost a little bit of its luster. Same with, with Battlefield. You've had Assassin's Creed take a couple of years off. I know sports games are kind of a different thing, but... I, to be honest, I was looking back at sales of, the, of uh, I think FIFA 14 was the first game to launch on on Xbox uh, One and PS4, and it's actually quite difficult to find official sales figures back then. But I think it's easily safe to say, particularly once you factor in things like FIFA Online out in Korea and the FIFA Mobile, that FIFA's got more players than it's ever had. Um, I think its impact and influence on the actual real world of football is is much much greater than 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 it was back then certainly and also greater than you can possibly realize unless you actually watch quite a lot of football when you you kind of get the sense that scouts for a lot of actual football clubs buy players based on how good they are on FIFA um, then you've also got the more um, sort of nefarious side of it which is much what we talked about I think uh, when I mean uh, 
Brendan wrote an excellent piece, um, and this is what we discussed last week, was uh, uh, FIFA's loot boxes, basically. Brendan wrote an excellent piece about the problems it's caused. You can go back and listen to that episode if you want a really deep discussion of it. But it's enough to say that in the uh, in financial year uh, third, 2013, um, ultimate team revenues were $200 million. That's around the start of the generation. Um, the most recent financial year was about $1.3 billion. Um, that's a tenfold increase. And, and that shows you the, and, and that's on a game that's also selling more copies. So you can see just how much more money FIFA is making, how much more important it is to, to uh, Electronic Arts bottom line. Um, I think I think one year, um, the last fiscal year, uh, it team contributed 28% of, of EA's entire revenue, which is pretty, pretty incredible. And this, the success of that product uh, Ultimate Team specifically, not just FIFA, has had a huge, huge outsized impact on the way other franchises look at their monetization, both both positive and negative ways. Other people have adopted similar mechanics. The the whole um, the the hit of opening a pack of cards and and you know randomly seeing what you get and then buying another and doing it again like that that is a basic loop that we've seen. Uh, proliferate across the industry and others I think have also looked at that and kind of find it slightly distasteful and a little bit and again this is what we talked about last last week but seen it as a bit distasteful and actually have gone the other direction and I think these kinds of mechanics are, are pretty much what led to, to the creation of things like season passes like other ways to go where you don't really have to have to use these these random chance gacha type mechanics in, in your video games. So I think in, in all kinds of different ways, and I don't expect anyone to have a lot to add to this one because we genuinely did talk about it for an hour last week, but I think in all kinds of ways, FIFA seems to me to be the, the game that's had the most influence, uh, the biggest impacts, is the most popular, and, and all of these kind of objective measures, um, not all of which are great, but definitely it's a massively important game now more so than it was at the start of the last generation i, I yeah i agree because it's it also because i'm a big football fan generally you know the ea sports have been i don't know if they still do but they did for a long time powered the statistics that sky use and stuff in the football um in in the um in the actual live games uh, real world live games and let's not forget you know that liverpool hired the former head of EA Sports to be their CEO, <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it led to their uh, most successful. You know, I'm not sure. I'm not saying Peter Moore is entirely responsible for Liverpool winning all those trophies, but um, he was he was the person in charge when they did. Um, so it's you can feel that yeah. impact. I mean, uh, uh, EA EA has mo- has a larger network of scouts looking at football players around the world than um, than the whole of the English Football League, not just the Premier League every club in the English Football League that's like five divisions or something um, so really if you want to know who good players are you genuinely can go on FIFA and that's as good a, a, a metric as you can possibly use and I've often had times I mean and we, we're moving away a little bit from the kind of the, the businessy aspect of it which is is really a driving factor behind why I think FIFA is so important but culturally it's very important too um, you know uh, uh, I, I follow Manchester United and a uh, uh, Several years ago, they bought a very, very young player called Anthony Martial for a very, very large amount of money. And everybody was scratching their heads thinking, who is this guy? Why is he worth whatever it was? I think it was like £30 million plus maybe another 15 if if he if he hit certain targets in his playing career, which, which actually is no longer that much money for a player as talented as that. But nobody kind of knew who he was. But if you played FIFA even three years before, you knew exactly who Anthony Martial was because he was like one of the players you'd go and buy because he was super fast and super young and had high potential and all this stuff. And that happens 
all the time. And it is a constant reminder of what a machine FIFA is, like how vast, what, I mean, I've, always, I've, I've actually always quite wanted to, to really kind of get a look in how they turn FIFA around in the space of a year and the way all of that scouting works and how all of that data is generated. And uh, I, th- I think it, it's, a, it's a truly impressive thing that they managed to get it done in a year, but it is very, very accurate. And you're constantly reminded when you watch real football that you always know about the, 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 the most promising new players well before seemingly a lot of coaches and a lot of commentators and all of that know about them just because you spend time digging through FIFA and, and unearthing them. And it's culturally, it, it's a huge thing. And I think an almost seamless part of the way people experience football in, in real life as well. And actually, one another thing that I'll point out, uh, I think FIFA does an amazing job. And this is where I kind of put on my, the fact that I actually, my, my FIFA fan hat um, does an amazing job of linking up with the real world of football as well. So it 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 has all this data and its match engine is used by clubs to to simulate matches and all this kind of stuff. But also like uh, you know it the 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 online service will take a, a specific game from the weekend with a with a with a specific result and allow you to kind of be dropped in the game on minute sixty seven and see if you can turn it around and accomplish it a different way. Yeah, I, it, it's uh, it's a remarkable thing, FIFA. I don't think back in 2013 you'd have it, it would have been possible to predict just how sort of pervasive and and large and and successful it's become. And it's actually looking like it's growing even more successful still. That's that's the other thing about it. Whereas so many other franchises have faltered and stumbled, FIFA is now like selling more in North America than it ever has. And you, and you get the feeling that it could grow quite a lot more there as well. Just as the sport of football itself, soccer it, itself, is growing too. So I think it, FIFA is the one AAA franchise that really hasn't lost a step, um, has grown in power and influence um, and continues to do so and probably will do for a few years to come, despite all of the problems that we, we went over last week. As Matt says, go back and listen to last week's episode for more in-depth discussion on those problems. It wasn't a brilliant episode, so yeah, please do go and listen. Uh, Rebecca, what would you say is the most important game of the generation? <laughs> well, I feel a little silly now because Matt laid out this absolutely excellent argument, and I didn't, I didn't prepare my speech notes for this one. Um, but I mean, it's Fortnite. It's Fortnite, of course. And I, I thought about this a little bit um, because there there have obviously been predecessors to Fortnite that existed this generation, right? Like like PUBG um, was really influential. It was, you know, kind of... The, it, it basically set up the the play for Fortnite. Um, Minecraft also was on the mind. Actually, was that, that was previous gen, isn't it? When did oh, Minecraft that's... come out? Well, it's... Yeah, I think it's 2010-ish, 2011. Okay, well, Minecraft doesn't count, whatever. But I, I, th- I ended up landing on Fortnite... Um, largely because of its sort of transformation, or I I think a full realization of the transformation of games into primarily social spaces. Um, I mean, that's that's sort of the the refrain that we've heard a lot over the last couple of years is that Fortnite is less a game and more of like a social space and a social network for people. You know, people get in there and they hang out and that's especially become true uh, throughout the pandemic. But I think think alongside that has come... er, a big part of that has been Fortnite sort of solidifying various kinds of business models surrounding that in a way that have made other companies want to emulate them and have shifted the industry in that direction, right? Like PUBG was very popular when it came out and it was a big deal, but I don't think we really saw 
sort of this move to things like the battle pass model to this this push for free to play games not just on mobile um but like mainstream big triple a um games and franchises moving into the free to play space um until fortnite happened um we didn't see the fortnite has pioneered this push into having other kinds of events in games like movie showings and concerts and even though that hasn't quite taken off elsewhere yet. You can see the beginnings of that and you can see people kind of taking that idea and going, okay, how can we do this for our audience? How does how does this make sense in other kinds of games? Um, and Fortnite hasn't really flagged, has it? Like, I mean, yeah, it doesn't have that initial burst that it had right when it launched, but we saw with the, the Black Hole event not too long ago that, you know, it it still has the power to command audiences, just massive audiences, and that's not going away. Um, I'm, they've, they've got partnerships with everybody, right? Like you can, I, th- I don't know, a while back, I, I put on like Iron Man gloves and went and like beat up a bunch of superheroes. And it was, it was just this very weird, like combination of different elements from different movie and uh, media franchises all smashed into one. And people have kind of that trust and that interest um, where they can, they feel they could put those things into Fortnite and have Fortnite actually reach people with them. It's just this wonderful confluence of like three, four, six different trends, right? All happening at once and all getting popularized at once by this game that has this massive reach and this massive audience um, to not just kids, but people at kind of at a wider range of age groups. Um, and it's it, it's fascinating. It's fascinating to see that all kind of, I guess, like catalyzed within Fortnite and then watching how other sectors of the industry take those trends and see which ones they want to play with as well. I thought you it's said the, you didn't bring your uh, your speech notes. Oh, that was a terrible speech. <laughs> pretty good. That's pretty good. I know. I'm, I'm convinced. It's the, the cross-media stuff as well. Like um, the, the example I always come back to is uh, when you watch Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker, so the last Star Wars film, the opening crawl, you know, the dead speaker, a message from Emperor Palpatine has been broadcast to the world. They are referring to a Fortnite event. There's a Star Wars film is referring to a Fortnite event. Like that, that just it, is baffling to me like that's how big fortnite has become that that it is canonically part of the star wars universe as it were um yeah it, i mean it, it, it is un- unquestionably it's, it's absolutely huge and it's it's ongoing importance as well like we've obviously been covering uh, quite extensively the epic versus apple um, and epic versus google by extension the um the court cases if if epic is to win the ramifications for the rest of the industry, the ramifications for you know having these walled garden systems, having this thirty percent cut, like it will be Fortnite. Technically, it will be Fortnite that changed that. If if Epic wins, like so, it, it may be in 10, 15 years, like it will be an influential title for completely different reasons. Yeah, well, I think also one thing about Fortnite, I'm not a, I'm not a player of it primarily because I don't really play online, so I don't like getting griefed and. Uh, harassed and stuff like that but uh, I, I have actually kind of tuned in and what or at least watched back some of the big uh, in-game events the black hole you're talking about Rebecca and the Travis Scott concert I mean and the thing that's striking is just how well handled how well executed those things are like it actually has a great deal of creativity for a game that could quite easily I mean you know I I don't want to talk too much about PUBG I've, I've played that more than Fortnite but Certainly, there wasn't this level of sort of fun to it. There wasn't this level of this the level of obvious attention to detail where there was a real drive to create different things inside. And I mean, you know, if you haven't done it, because I'm not no fan of Travis Scott as a musician, but 
go and what I mean watch it if you haven't it is an absolutely spellbinding uh, spectacle and and to think that that happened within a video game and however many people it was you know 10 million people whatever it was turned up to 12.7 million people turned up to watch it it it's remarkable and it what it what it reminds me of actually is kind of what second life was trying to be and Fortnite has managed to achieve that while simultaneously being the biggest shooter game in the world as well where back in the in the in the the heyday if you want to call it that second life you'd have like duran duran giving a concert to five thousand people and wired would write about how it's like a new dawn for entertainment and all this stuff and then you track forward to now only about 10 years later and it genuinely is you know you could you could say that this could be the way that and not just in Fortnite, but i think and to 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 batch's point to james's point it, I feel like Fortnite has been one of the key games of, of of this sort of console generation, but in many ways I feel like it's seeded a few concepts that are only going to become more and more more disruptive and more influential as time goes on. And track forward five years, and, and you do wonder the the degree to which these sort of persistent games will be folding in all of these other entertainment forms and having film screenings and that kind of stuff. And that really has all started yeah. with Fortnite. Twelve point three million. I want I, 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 I got it wrong. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I, I just wanted to agree with you, Matt. I, I went with friends to the Travis Scott concert. Like we got in a Discord voice chat together. We showed up together and we went and it was like, it it was nothing like just, it, it was nothing like being at a real concert, but sure. it was a singular experience in of itself that I'm keen to repeat. I'm with you. I, I don't care for Travis Scott's music. That's like fine, but it was so incredible because it was this very yeah. deliberately crafted experience where you were you were moving, you know, you were moving around and like like flying through the air and doing all these different things as the concert was going on yeah. that went with the music and we were all, you know, yeah. laughing and like cheering as we were doing this and it like, I wanted it to go on. It it ended too and soon. And the uh, yeah, the environment changes yeah. and, and like uh, we did approach Epic because I was really wanted to do a piece on like how did that get put together? How was that how was that concept formed? Like, what were the different ideas were left out? And like, they just hit a stone wall. They're like, oh, we don't want to talk about this. And it's like, what? why on earth not? It was amazing. You pretty, you pretty much just changed the face of the music industry yesterday and you don't really want to talk about it. Like, I, I feel like it's because it's so such early days that they just want to kind of get a handle on what actually has been accomplished and what it truly means before they, before they show their hands. Sony but, Music yeah. went and invested in... The company, not Sony, Sony did, and everyone assumed it. Initially, everyone was like, "Oh, PlayStation has invested in uh, Epic." No, they Sony did, and that's because Sony Pictures, Sony mu- Pictures, Sony Music. And I did an interview this week. It will probably be live by the time this podcast gone up with uh, Warner uh, Music, and um, they talk about uh, uh, you know how you know they will f- they foresee artists having virtual concerts like this in their calendar for next you know in the future you know when they've got their right when playing glastonbury i'm doing this tour over here and one of the dates will be Fortnite or whatever and that's you know that that's that's the impact it's having way beyond our gaming borders yeah and i would also point people towards an excellent article by matt ombler who's one of our freelancers and pretty much cornered the market in writing intelligently about the the, the clash of music and and games industries and that is pretty much about what role live music will play in the future of games and it's clear that the music industry is absolutely desperate to for these two worlds to collide and the other thing with Fortnite is i'll say i'll go back to the event thing because i thought the black hole thing was absolute genius level stuff like you just don't see that kind of level of um 
of boldness in free-to-play games, like taking the game offline, shrinking it down to a tiny little point, and then it just the level of invention going on there, I think, is difficult to look past with the kind of this big behemoth, yeah. um, behemoth game that's there. There's I. I've been a little bit disappointed over the last three, four, five months or so because it feels like kind of that that wild creative energy is flagged. Um, the Fortnite is still very fun. I play very I play regularly, but um, it feels like it, it's mostly just sort of you know steadily chugging on by bringing in by doing the cross media thing, which is fun. Um, but it's it's not quite the same as those those big um, you know internet stopping events basically. Um, but and it's been sort of disappointing, I think, especially given the pandemic and how many other people are being like very inventive with the ways in which they engage people who are stuck at home. But the the kind of eager part of my brain who loves Fortnite is just thinking, well, these things take a lot of time and effort to do. I wonder what big thing they're gearing up for next. Or are they just pouring all of their energy into doing PR for that lawsuit? So, I don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, it, the, the nature of games is that, that these things have cycles. I mean, at least cycles in terms of attention. You know, uh, League of Legends is still a massive game, but it doesn't quite get the same, doesn't have as much of the public attention as it used to, for example. And, and Fortnite's time for that probably will come as well. Uh, what? But the one thing about Fortnite is that it, anytime anyone in the games industry until Fortnite started talking about the metaverse I, I would just kind of sigh and raise an eyebrow and while I still am somewhat tempted to do that when you hear Tim Sweeney talk about it I don't think it's ever been as credible I think Fortnite is has provided some kind of rough idea of what a metaverse concept actually looks like it which is this is a place where people just go to hang out and spend time and it's not just a game it's a it's a social environment where people gather and the game is almost incidental to that. And it can support all of these other kinds of experiences. And I think what, what it's in its embryonic phase, and I don't think it's Fortnite that's going to push it to the next stage necessarily, but I think a lot of credit is due and, and this is kind of why it's in the important section rather than the favourite section maybe, but like that, that's kind of part of it. So the risk of moving us on, um, I'm going to throw in my most important game here because it's kind of tangentially created related to kind of Matt's last point there. I have opted for destiny. Um, now I don't have as, as many speech notes as, uh, as Rebecca or Matt, but the, the reason is, um, and I have to caveat this with, I don't play a great deal of online games, but I've, I want to, and I have tried to, to keep up, up to date with them as possible prior to destiny. The vast majority of online multiplayer experiences, particularly on console, were very kind of small scale, match based. It was, you know, in, everybody kill each other for 10 minutes and then get out and everything resets. Destiny brought about this kind of shared world experience that kind of made the the MMO style of gaming possible on consoles. Um, and to a lesser extent, you know, MMOs have existed on PC for, for far, far longer than this on, on you know in the PC space, but on consoles they'd never quite work. They'd never you'd never quite manage this large scale multiplayer experience on a console where everyone can join in together. And as Matt says, like you can just hang out. You can you know you can muck around at the tower or whatever the social hub of uh, Destiny Two is, um, or you can go together in these raids and strikes. And like previous generation, I was living with a couple of um, mates and they were massively into MMOs and I'd hear them talking about all oh, raids and strikes and you know all these you know, four hour boss raids and so forth and that just wasn't something that I was aware of in the console world and then Destiny came along and that became a thing and, and you move forward and there are far more shared world multiplayer experiences now 
obviously there is Fortnite and that's completely different almost a different kind of scale but you've got things like the division anthem even marvel's avengers which all right you only have like kind of a team of four but it's still similar it's, it's still right you're working together on these missions it's all about the loot grind and so forth like that all stems from destiny f uh, for me i'm not saying yeah, obviously i'm aware there will be other titles that that have an influence but destiny feels like the one that proved that this can work that people want this larger shared experience that isn't just this small-scale match-based fracas, as it were, um, that it's an ongoing thing, that there are events that happen and their world changes with each expansion. Um, there's weekly events, weekly challenges, daily events, like all these different things happen between the big expansions. It shifted, the, it moved the needle in what multiplayer games could become. And I, and I think a lot of people are still chasing that trend now. I would like to add to that with something that you did not mention, James. I was found, I have I don't know anything about Destiny. I do not play Destiny. My friend, my really good friend plays Destiny and talks to me about it, something about the light, the moon. I don't know what it means. But they so I, I'm big into MMOs. I really like World of Warcraft. I could talk to you about World of Warcraft all day. Um I have been frustrated over I promise I'm going somewhere with this. I've been frustrated over the years with the fact that World of Warcraft is it's this older game, you know, it's 16 years old. It is it is feeling increasingly bloated with content that it does not need. And admittedly they've done things recently that have kind of helped that along, but it still feels like a game that is unsustainable for for as long as they want it to be sustainable for because there's too much going on. Destiny, Bungie recently came around and it was like a few months ago or whatever, um, when they were talking about their their new system of updates to the game and what they were going to do. And they're doing this thing where they are deliberately going to start retiring old content and just taking it out of the game. And they posted some figures where they, it, they gave like one example of this one area that's like older content. Um, and they were basically comparing this, th this, this area that is in the game that was in the game at the time took up like a large amount of the file size. Like it was, it was giving people these big downloads, but like 2% of all players were engaging with it or something like that. And so there's just no reason to keep it in the game. And so they have adapt they, they have developed this kind of system where they are retiring content that is no longer either no longer relevant to the current storyline or no longer being engaged with by a lot of players. And they've kind of got this vault so that they have they have room to bring in new content and also make sure that the world that people are entering in, if they're entering Destiny for the first time, they're not just wandering into this universe where there's, you know, years worth of old storyline that maybe has like weird dead ends or doesn't make sense anymore or is is quests that are, are just not useful or interesting to people because there's different kinds of content out there now. Um, but then they have this whole system where if something becomes relevant again, they can refresh it bring it up to date with the rest of the story and bring it back into the rotation. And it, it, it's really fascinating, like reading the whole thing. And this was months ago, so I might be I might be fudging it a little bit. But I loved the idea for that system for games that want to exist in the long term. Because World of Warcraft is not the only game out there that is kind of bloated with old content. And it, it's just keeping like this ancient stuff around for the sake of having ancient stuff around because there are there's a small vocal player base that will yell if you take away their stuff that was that they, they're nostalgic for from like 10 years ago. And I, I love that idea. And I think that's brilliant. And I, I don't really know how that's going to go for them yet. Because you know, we're probably going to have to watch it happen for a few years to really see what kind of impact that that has. But I want I very badly want other other MMOs and other like, you know, live ongoing games like that to adopt that content model, because I think it's very smart. And I think that it it stands a chance of helping games like Destiny and others have a much longer life cycle as a result. 
Yeah. I mean, I think you can definitely see Destiny as the kind of the starting point of mm, maybe a trend. Yeah, I guess so. A starting point of trend of, of, of kind of persistent online shooters becoming becoming more prevalent on consoles. And that, that, that does include uh, Fortnite, if you ask me. I, I, I think it's easy to forget just how much hype there was around Destiny when it did launch. And I think the thing that Destiny did... Because I think it launched about a year after these new consoles um, hit the market, around a year. Yeah, it was September 2014, so even less than a year. Um, And what Destiny did do was really kind of bring a new kind of experience to those consoles. I think that's the kind kind of game that we're waiting on for this generation. I mean, not not the the new generation. Not to say, obviously, it should have arrived by, by now, but... Like Gears of War did for the generation before that, for the 360 generation, you get a game that comes along, kind of resets the playing field a little bit, introduces some new, some new formats, some new ways of thinking about game design, some new kinds of experiences for players. Um, it was very important in that respect, and it, it did help set a certain kind of tone for the sort of games that would become would come to dominate the the following seven years. I think so. Yeah, it's definitely definitely has a lot of importance in that sense. I'm keen to get us onto the disappointment soon. So, Marie, what is your most important game? Uh, yes, hi. Sorry, I was very intently listening to everything. It feels curiously stressful to go now for some reason. This feels like there's a lot at stake. <laughs> it's really weird. Um, anyway, so uh, the most important game of the generation for me is God of War. Uh, and the reason for that is, for me... It like really set the tone um, as to what AAA narrative-driven games could be like. And I'll even go as far as saying it redefined the fact that AAA games can be narrative-driven without relying on movie tropes. And I think that's something that had an impact as almost as soon as it launched, and it will continue to have an impact uh, throughout next-gen. And I think, I think it all comes down to the fact that it manages to tell a great story without relying too heavily on cutscenes. I think that's really the, the core of it. I think I think the generation that just ended, there's been this feeling that's been expressed by many AAA developers, that feeling of AAA fatigue. We've seen a lot of AAA developers like leaving big studios to set up their own thing because a lot of AAA games started to all feel a bit samey. And I think that's where God of War really... Uh, was shining this generation because I feel like it really did something different with its narrative. Um, Sony Santa Monica creative di- creative di- director um, Corey um, Barnrog. Barnrog Barnrog. Thank you. I, it's not Barnrog. Barnrog is the monster from Lord of the Rings. And you know the worst thing about this is I have like notes and stuff, and I underlined the R three times because I was like, pronounce it right, pronounce it right, and I still pronounced it wrong. It's just like I'm sorry, Corey. I love your work, but I can't pronounce your name. Man should just change change his name to Bar. I mean, it really should. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's focus on what he said rather than how to pronounce his name um he said for me the narrative is not the cinematics the narrative is the world and i think that's just great and i think so many games should be doing that instead of focusing on cinematics um so for anyone who hasn't played god of war in god of war you literally stay immersed in the experience at all times because um you experience everything um through Kratos, the main character's length. So you, the camera is constantly behind Kratos and there is a few cutscenes because they couldn't 
get away with not having a few cutscenes here and there. But the camera work is just seamless. It almost feels like it's just one shot throughout the entire game and you are Kratos and it's just wonderful. And almost everything you learn about the situation and the world is through conversations between Kratos and his son Atreus. And like it feels like the impact is tenfold because you really are that character. You, it's I don't know how to explain it. Sometimes it feels weird to say it out loud, you know. But there are other games that have been close to that feeling as well. I'm thinking about The Last of Us Part Two, which is a great example of uh, having of, of feeling like you're the character and really feeling what they're feeling. But there is like an intimacy in God of War that I've not felt in many other AAA games. Uh, then they were very smart also in adding the character of Mimir, who is the North God of Knowledge and Wisdom, which sounds really cool. Uh, is that the head? <laughs> it's the head. So early in the game, you acquire yeah. Mimir's head. And Mimir is at your belt, and he tells you stories and myth every time you jump on your boat. And so you learn about the lore of the world through him, and it's just a fantastic way to just build up that world, and it feels fully realized, and like... I don't know, for me, God of War is just really important for me because I feel like it really redefines what a good story is in games and also how you can tell that good story. It can be subtle, it can be intimate, and it can still deliver on the AAA experience side of things. And it doesn't have to be cutscenes like every two minutes that completely take you out of the experience. Um, And yeah, just games don't have to be films, I guess is a very important thing for me. And I think God of War proved that and... You don't have to replicate cinematic moments in the traditional sense. And games can do their own thing, their own stories. And yeah, that's something that's really cool about God of War, I guess. Yeah. It's also another aspect of that, I think, is... I was talking in an interview I did with the, the developer, Thomas Sala, who's the guy behind the Falconeer, the Xbox launch title. He was talking about how <clears throat> what, what indies have been doing with creating games that are more expressive of personal feelings um, and you know states of mind and and just generally resonate on a more human level has kind of started to bubble up into the AAA level and the first when he said that the first game I thought about was God of War because the of course the interesting thing about God of War is that Kratos was I mean look, I, don't get me wrong like I started as a game journalist like, just before God of War 2 came out and God of War 2 was absolutely amazing um when, when you first laid eyes on him, you just couldn't, couldn't believe that that was possible in a game. It had that cinematic thing going back then, but much more kind of cutscene just had a level of spectacle going on. But obviously Kratos was completely two-dimensional uh, brute to just beat, beat people's heads in with his fists and rip people's heads off. and You know, just fairly typical male power fantasy stuff. And what God of War also represents is, um, you know, in some sense, it's like the games industry coming to terms with its own history and the way and the kind of heroes that it's relied on for so long. And its treatment of Kratos and the addition of Atreus, that's the, the kid's name. And it really is about fathers and sons and it is about regret. And it's about all of these things that games made for $100 million by teams of 300 people are never, ever, ever about. And it's so brilliantly about those things as well i mean it is obviously violent and it has its cake and it cake and eat it to a degree as well but the way it sort of symbolizes uh triple a developer like someone like Corey barlog who was the director of god of war 2 in fact so it is in a very real sense him re-examining his own creative choices in the past and putting them in a new context with a bit more maturity and i you know i i think 
I think we, we've yet to kind of fully see the importance of God of War, but I really, really hope it does have a lasting impact because it would be great to see uh, these kinds of old creative impulses be re-examined and recontextualized for, 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 the, modern, for the modern world. Because while, while those games were fun, they weren't profound and they didn't make you think and all of these kinds of things. And God of War, I think, for me, it's a flawless masterpiece. I think it's one of the best games of all time. Um, certainly my, one of my favorite games that I've ever played. But, but mainly because of that reason, not because, you know, you, you get to do the chain fist thing halfway through the game and things that some people get very excited about, but but for those relationships. And as you say, Marie, the, the, the way the camera never cuts. Oh, and while, so while there are there are kind of there are sort of cutscenes of a sort, but you don't cut to that cutscene, it just starts happening and you don't even kind of realise that you're no longer controlling what's going on because you were a minute ago, now you're not, and then all of a sudden you've got control again and it's a very fluid thing that's supremely immersive and i hope it does have some things that other i mean you know it, obviously you need a lot of tech to to get that working too but um but i, I you know go, go out and read some interviews with Corey barlog he was did a lot around the launch of that game and it, it's utterly fascinating just how close to disaster that that project was the entire time just because of the amount of creative daring that was going on in the background so it's a good one to dig into. I have a sneaking suspicion, just a hunch, if you will, that we will be returning to God of War during the final yes. session where we talk about our favourite games. I have more things so, to say. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, round us off with uh, your most important game. Um, I'm gonna. I picked uh, Final Fantasy VII Remake, a game I've not played, um, reviewed okay, <laughs> what? and um, uh, sort of sold all right. Um, I'm, I'm, so um, there was a moment making a good case so far. my head at, the, at these so-called games journalists. <laughs> there was this moment during E3. I can't remember what year it was. It was two years after the console. It was probably 2015 um, when they announced Final Fantasy VII remake um, uh, on stage. And if you were in that room, in that PlayStation room, I don't, I don't know, what, I don't know how you can compare it to anything. I've never, I've been in football stadiums where England have scored a goal in the last minute to send them through to, you know, the cup final, and I've not heard a roar like it. Um, there was a guy who pretty much collapsed next to me when that game was revealed, um, and the reason why I bring it up is because this is a generation where, and I'm a big commercial guy, but I'm also a gamer and. Um, uh, a commercial guys, you know, I'm interested in the commercials of the games industry. Um, and I feel the games industry has left me behind a little bit. But over this generation, um, an entire sub-industry set up in the nostalgia of the business. And there's always been remakes and remasters. Nintendo have been doing it their entire life. But never before have we seen it quite like this. So Crash Bandicoot was one of the biggest selling games of the year, the remakes of that. We've had Bloodstained, Ukulele, Shenmue, these games are built on historical titles dominate kickstart and bring in millions there's the snes mini the resident evil 2 remake um, old school runescape is now more popular than modern runescape um, the playstation 20th anniversary campaign was a major milestone in the ps4 marketing story you've got entire studios now built around making old games like aspire and night drive and then you've got limited run and stuff who's enjoyed these aren't new studios but they have enjoyed significant success and as they focus in on this um, and Final Fantasy VII Remake was like a moment that represented that for me because um, it, it it feels like the industry is sort of finally, belatedly, sort of embracing its history, and and it's 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 basically a new multi million dollar business. You know, Activision view remaking games now as one of its big things, which you know, so this is the company that's Call of Duty, Destiny, and Skylanders in the past billion dollar businesses. That that's the level we're talking about here, and um, and the moment for me that just represented it was that 
Final Fantasy VII Remake Raw. It just, this new industry has emerged. Nintendo's surging right back to the top of the charts again, heavily riding that wave of nostalgia. This year for me has been a nostalgia-driven year, going back in time to play tons of tons of games. And this basically got an entirely new business. So I don't think it's necessarily changed. These games aren't changed the way games are going to be made in the future. Um, they're not um, going to change how um uh, it's, it's not it's not like influenced they don't even influence modern titles like they're not they're not you might get a crash bandicoot reference in an uncharted but that's the best you'll get but what it's what it's done is it's it's basically engaged an entire group of gamers who perhaps are at that point where they might start aging out of the industry and uh, it's making masses of money masses of money more so than it's ever done um, and it's quite exciting, you know, backwards compatibility now has to happen. It's the norm and, you know, companies are under fire if they don't go all the way back now to the dawn of gaming. And I think that's, that's, that's brilliant. And, um, yeah, that is why for me, Final Fantasy VII Remake or Crash, you can pick any of those games I just listed, um, is one of the, um, uh, most important games of, uh, the generation. Not, not to drag, not, not to make this podcast longer by adding more things to what Chris said, but I, I too have not played Final Fantasy VII, but I am aware of what goes on in the Final Fantasy VII remake. And something that has fascinated me and has made me inclined to check it out at some point is the fact that the game seriously grapples with the fact that it is a remake, like like in the context of the game. I, I don't want to I don't want to spoil it in case any of you care about Final Fantasy 7, but there there is a a thread running through that game of the fact that things the the plot events in Final Fantasy 7 remake are not playing out in the way they did in the original and there are certain characters that are aware there is this other this other story, this other timeline that exists and that things are not going correctly and that comes comes to a, some kind of a climax toward the end of the game, and it, it's obviously going to be continued in the next installment. But I, I always thought that was incredibly fascinating. That it was a, it was a remake of such an incredibly popular game that that tried to address the fact that it was a remake yeah. and that it was, it, it wasn't going to do things the exact same way. I, well, I think one of my favorite, there's a the Ratchet and Clank remake. Uh, reference on another of my favorite games did a similar thing in that they retold the first story but it's told from the perspective of uh one of the other characters he's in prison he's being asked what happened and he's retelling that first story and as a result of that things are a little bit different and it's told a little bit differently but it's a remake in the sense that it's just sort of someone telling you what happened before and therefore the game can be a bit different and it, it does that in a very clever way of making it a remake whilst also you know keeping it in the modern than the now and it's um but yeah no i uh, yeah uh, again, I have no idea. You know way more about the Final Fantasy VII remake than I do, and I picked it. Um, <laughs> the, um, but I just, um, I just, I love the nostalgia of this industry. Like, um, I had a, we were talking the other day about what our games of the year have been, and I'm, I'm sitting there going, I've only played games that I also happen to have played twenty years ago. I love it. it it's, I... but it's an interesting uh, quirk of games as an entertainment form. Do they age worse than other entertainment forms? Um, not not to say that other entertainment forms don't age, like books can feel outdated and, and music can, can feel very of its time and, and films, you know, acting styles change and that kind of thing. But with games, like you can get like seven years past the game and feel like it doesn't really play well enough anymore, you know, like they, they age extremely quickly. So I actually really welcome this trend into the industry because I would, there are many games where I really, really would like to see someone go back and you know, like with Resident Evil 2, which is another great example of this. Like, there's, it's not, it, it's, 
It's a remake, but in many ways it's almost like a completely different game because it really is built from brand new pieces and parts of it are completely rethought out and the control scheme's different and all of these different things. Um, and and I, I would love to I would love to see that happen more often because the, one of the sad things about gaming is you can't really easily go back, hook up a PS2, put in your favourite game from that era and expect to enjoy it as much as you would do maybe with a film that you loved in the 90s or a, a band you listened to back in 1998 or whatever. That that stuff that age, tends to age better because there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of uh, the vagaries of like input systems and, and just the way graphics were and performance and it just changes and a lot of it's out of the creative people's hands. And so seeing creative people take another run at the same ideas and put them out there. And as you say, Rebecca, with, with kind of new twists and a, and a little bit of a, kind of a meta attitude about it, I think is, is a fanta- f- fascinating trend that I think we're going to see continue and yeah, and, and probably bring a lot more um, interesting games to light again. It's like the opposite of the live-action Disney remakes. Like, whereas the originals are still perfect and flawless and stand up so well, and then the remakes just make them worse. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's move on to the disappointments. Matt, do you want to go with your disappointment first? Yeah, okay, I'll go. Um, I actually had a different one for this originally. It was going to be... I'm not, not going to mention it just in case it crosses over with something somebody else says, but I have changed my mind on this a few times. Um, I was initially thinking about games, but I've ended up uh, just with one word, and that is Bioware. Um, I think... If you had asked me in two, the start of 2013, so the year that the Xbox One, the PS4 came out, which my favourite developer would be, it probably would have been Bioware. Um, there may have been other contenders, like I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of Rockstar, for example. I really, really like Fallout, um, less so the Elder Scrolls, but I still like that one, and I'm very big on RPGs. So there, there were a few studios that would run it close, but if you look at, I mean, particularly if you look at the previous generation, so... In, and this doesn't include like handheld games and Bioware's always been fairly active in like little side projects and stuff, but this is kind of mainline console games. In the space of five years, Mass Effect, Dragon Age Origins, Mass Effect 2, Dragon Age 2, uh, Star Wars The Old Republic, Mass Effect 3 in five, in five years. Um, that's incredible. Uh, I would say in there you've got two or three of the greatest RPGs, certain Western RPGs ever made. Uh, you have uh, an MMO game that, that's still going strong and people people love it more than ever. Um, I don't think there's any bad games in there, uh, not even average games, not, not even just good games. All of these are kind of very good or better. I know some people have a problem with Dragon Age 2, but I will I challenge all of them to a duel because I think that game got a, got a bad rap just because it reused environments and lots of people in the games industry like to look at games like their uh, televisions or fridges or whatever and it did some fascinating things with narrative and it was novelistic and it was and it was impressive and had some of the best characters so yeah i mean mass effect 3 i know the ending but i think maybe that's kind of where you start to see it go wrong right so mass effect 3 comes out some of the worst people in the world decide they don't like the ending and start petitions and one has to assume and again this is all allegedly just put allegedly in front of everything I'm about to say, but EA maybe applied pressure on Bioware 
to kind of respond to these trolls, this very, very vocal minority. And they patched a different ending to their game on, uh, giving in to the kind of people that are having more and more and more of an impact on, on the way people think and, think and act in the industry, the, the kind of the, the toxic minority. Um, and then if you look at what Bioware has produced <laughs> since Mass Effect 3, so, so you've got those six brilliant games in five years and then in the last seven dragon age inquisition which is fine i don't know if anyone else played it but it's okay you know it's fine I, I it wasn't, I, it I wasn't particularly good it. yeah no. I, i'm the same mass effect andromeda and we all know how that went and anthem which wasn't even an rpg it's just a shooter game um what happened you know uh, i I played two of those games. I didn't even bother with Anthem, and I found the two of them to be okay. And the the swing from absolute guaranteed quality and craft and original thinking to, I don't know, just very... I, I don't think Inquisition Andromeda represent... I mean, like, I, I think Anthem is kind of some bad ideas, not very well executed. I don't think Inquisition Andromeda are that, but it's definitely much more flat, definitely much less creative. Um, definitely seem to be kind of more invested in being big than in being good. Um, and yeah, it's hard to put your finger on. And I think the temptation is just to say, well, you know, the Ray Musica and Greg Zeshuk left and EA took over and, and this is kind of where you end up. Um, I, it is hard not to look at the debacle around the ending of Mass Effect 3 as kind of a turning point, the point where you could say that the, the fans lost faith in Bioware, but actually I think maybe that Bioware or EA lost faith in Bioware. Um, but certainly... I think you'd be hard pushed to find a studio that was operating on that higher level for five years to have the to have a seven to have a seven year period where so little kind of went right, where pretty much everything was a bit meh, or an app. You know, in the case of Anthem, one of one of the historic failures in the games industry. But we're now at a point where it's even difficult to have faith in Bioware now because of how flat it's been for such a long time, and that. That is a real indictment of somebody on some level at some stage of EA or Bioware's management. Like that's that should not have that should not have happened. Something very badly went wrong there. And it is for someone who, you know, I talked about God of War being a flawless masterpiece. Mass Effect Two is a flawless masterpiece as well. I, I yeah, I just don't know how you go from those heights to those lows in the space of seven years. You know. But it's okay because the Mass Effect Legendary Edition is on on its way, uh, but, um, and a new Dragon Age <laughs> game, and hopefully it's like a yeah. return to first principles and a return to just ripping off Tolkien or whatever, whatever it is, but whatever the special source is. But you know what? I would take a Tolkien rip off over uh, over a more more Andromeda and more Anthem. So hopefully we get a bit of that. But but nothing has disappointed me more. I know what you mean. Kind of, on a on a related note, I nearly put my disappointment of the generation is, as gamers because of just the sheer <laughs> you should have done, yeah. you should have done. the nonsense yeah. we get from them like we had gamergate happened this generation oh my um, god all of the nonsense you generally get against the you know, if ever a game does something that develop that they that the, the gamers don't like that fans don't like just the harassment on social media and it feels like that's got worse this generation and i was game, game, the, gamergate was a pc exclusive batch doesn't count oh! <laughs> 
I was gonna, I was gonna, I was going to put Jameis as my my disappointment of the generation. But then again, like I remember, you know, like no Mass Effect three. Mass Effect three is where it all started. So that's kind of it started as a trend that started with the previous generation. Since I've started ranting, then if you don't mind, I'm going to throw in my um, disappointment. And I'm going to keep it brief because it's probably nowhere near as as big as that. This is just personal choice. I was go- I was going to put Thief 2014 the remake because my god that game was awful and as the follow up to my favorite game of all time Thief 2 I was obviously hoping for something good but me ranting about how bad Thief was is not going to provide any value to our industry listeners so I'm going to expand and talk about the death of the immersive sim this is my favorite genre and it, I I cannot fathom why this genre has struggled the way it has an immersive sim is essentially a game where it's often first person and it often it, it's narrative driven and it allows you to approach situations in a variety of ways prime example deus ex you can either go in all guns blazing cyber bashing your way through the bad guys or you can sneak through vents and take them out with like non-lethal weapons or you can hack your way through the you know through the base or whatever and read people's emails and find their passwords and get through that way like there's always a different way to do it there's action there's puzzles there's maybe some ill-informed boss fights but there is a there's a, a variety there and you know it's 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 a genre that includes things like thief dishonored deus ex prey all of those on hiatus because they did not sell well enough. And I don't understand why. Like, I don't understand how a genre that and that opens itself to so many playstyles is then not appealing to as broad an audience as possible. If I may, I'm going to quote one of our own articles. I actually got the chance to speak to Warren Spector, um, who worked on, like, System Shocked and kind of the early day SX, like, you know, the, 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 the pioneers of this genre, as it were. Uh, and he, I asked him why these are struggling. He said, um, the reality is we ask people to work. It's an interesting thing. The immersive simulation is not the kind of game where you can just keep moving forward like a shark and you eventually win. It's not the kind of genre where you just solve a puzzle that designer created for or kill everything that moves and you win. It's a genre where you have to decide what to do. You have to choose how to interact with the world. That is work. It requires brain power. So I suspect that's part of it. I just I, it disappoints me that we're not getting any more Dishonored or Prey or Thief or Deus Ex because people can't be bothered to think. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, but I think, I, I think probably one inspector is on the money. Yeah, certainly, the the thing I immediately thought of was well, it, you know, the really really popular games can be boiled down to maybe like one or two core game loops that are just fun to engage with and grind on and that kind of stuff, and that that might be why they are more popular. But I'm but I'm with you, Bash. I mean, what my my, one of my other picks, which is why I didn't want to mention it for, for disappointment, was the fact that Dishonored did not ma- Dishonored Two particularly did not manage to find a big mm. enough audience to justify that series continuing. Because I think, in terms of like a, an original sort of world set of characters, fiction created this generation. I don't think I like anything more than I like Dishonored. Um, and the fact that, well, we'll see, because obviously Microsoft owns Dishonored now, and we know that its view of Game Pass is it can be a home for games that didn't necessarily sell that well or sell enough commercially to be able to justify uh, sequel after sequel that maybe in the, in the Game Pass context they can. So who knows, Dishonored 3 may be, but, but that, that's uh, uh, something I, I really deeply regret. And I think... You know, it's it's also similar to games like Hitman, for example, and I, I I love this genre too. But there does seem to be something inherent to it, which means that maybe you're only ever going to get two million people. These to buy these a game. things do happen in loops. Like you, the industry has an annoying habit of finding something that was quite popular. Everyone rushes into it at the same time. 
turns out there isn't that room for that many and then everyone drops out and the genre looks like it's died and you know there was a time Square Enix was making Thief and Deus Ex and Dishonored was around and it was just a lot of it and I'm not saying that these games are going to make millions and millions and millions but we've seen so many genres come back in the last couple of years because the indies have realized that they work like even the horror genre was dead seven years ago and then suddenly, you know, Slender Man happened and wasn't it Outlast or whatever the PlayStation? Yeah. Was it? yeah. Outlast, yeah. yeah, it's like Soma and, uh, and, and, that, and that kind of stuff. I, I think that's a good point though, right? Like you get indies with reasonable resources can pick these things up and make them their own, you know? I would love to see an indie thief. Yeah. And then, they, and then, and then, and then suddenly a AAA company goes, what happens if we put some money behind it? And boom, it's back again. And everyone rushes in and all the cycle yeah. begins again. <laughs> Well, I think actually Thief might be one of the most disappointing releases because that was Eidos Montreal, I believe. Yeah, it was Eidos Montreal. Yeah. Um, and they were just off the back of Deus Ex Human Revolution, which was a fantastic game. Like, it was such a yeah. good game. So brilliantly realised. And the idea of though that team, um, and it had some incredibly talented individuals, who I, some of whom I saw speak at a MIGS, uh, Montreal International Game Summit, um, shortly after Human Revolution came out and just thought like these guys on Thief could produce something brilliant because I, you know, I don't know if it's the second but Thief Dark Project is one of my favourite games of all time and yeah, just it was like proper 5 out of 10 stuff and you just don't understand it but I think that, I mean maybe in some ways that's less disappointing because that was not a very good game whereas you had like Prey is another example oh, that's a game I played on Game Pass that's a great game and like yeah, it didn't prob- probably barely broke a million sales you know, there's, there's something in there isn't there? To stop me from ranting further, someone else go with their disappointment of the generation. Uh, Marie, let's have yours. Sure. Um, so my biggest disappointment in this generation was Red Dead Redemption 2. Um, there's both a personal aspect to that and uh, uh, and um, and another aspect that's less personal, I guess. Uh, but on a personal note, it just didn't work for me at all. Um, when I was like preparing thoughts and stuff, I read back Wired's uh, review for that game and uh, the headline was it that it's so big that it feels like a shore and that's very much how I felt throughout my entire time with that game it's just like it took forever to start and like I, I know that happens there's a lot of games that it takes a bit of time for everything to click into place and stuff but for me it feels like I was constantly waiting for the moment where you get the good bits, but it just didn't happen. There, there, there wasn't any good bit for me, at least. So I just eventually stopped playing, and th- th- it felt like there was some completely not arbitrary. What's the word I'm looking for? Like inflexible design choices, like the control scheme, that I was just never able to get over. Uh, it always takes a bit of time to get used to new controls, especially if you've played another open world game before, for instance. But with Red Dead, I just honestly felt like I was constantly pushing the wrong buttons. And it made me really angry. Um, but yeah, I don't know. There's like, it's actually quite hard for me to pinpoint why it didn't work for me, but it was almost too perfect, too inflexible, and like it took itself too seriously there's- and it just didn't. There's a there's and a YouTube series called Honest Trailers where they just take the mick out of films and games. And the one for Red Dead Redemption Two says uh, there's a line. I know this is supposed to be a masterpiece, so why does playing it feel like dying? <laughs> and that that just summed it up exactly. for me. It's honestly that that really pinpoints actually how I feel about it. It's just like I know a lot of people really loved it, and it, it it's so good in many ways. Like there's it's visually stunning for, for for instance and i can't take that away from it but just from a gameplay perspective it just really didn't work for me and like on top of that 
for me, it like completely embodies that crunch culture that we've seen in AAA uh, this generation as well. And I can't just not think about that when I think about Red Dead 2. I feel like this previous generation, I don't think crunch was necessarily more like it happened more than in the previous generations, but we certainly talked about it more. And hearing things like what Rockstar co-founder said about like the 100 hour week almost bragging about working 100 hours a week while working on on Red Dead Redemption 2 and I just I'm just tired of that I'm really am and I feel like crunch has been plaguing this generation and Red Dead Redemption 2 is kind of a symbol of that but we've seen many other games be uh like having the same issue uh, and still happening now at the end of this generation with Cyberpunk, for instance. And so, yeah, I guess that's kind of all the reasons why Red Dead Redemption 2 for me was just didn't didn't work at all on many levels. Yeah, I I'm, I did not play Red Dead Redemption. And I forgive me for a crass example, but I, th- I think about when when that game was, you know, previews were coming out and people were talking about it. I remember there were a lot of articles and it was very funny because I'm juvenile, but yes, about the very realistically rendered horse testicles. I forgot. Like, forgot. Very, yes. very funny headline. I hilarious. Love it. Uh, what did that really add to the game, though? Like, like, yeah, f- funny headlines for a few days, true. But how much work went into not not just that 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 using that as like an example of just deeply unnecessary detail to this game? Like, what did that really add to Red Dead? What did that really add to video games as a whole? Like, well, hang on, but do you but but do you think that they did that because they thought it was mm. funny? No. So so that was so that wasn't the point. No, no, I, I don't think they did. I think that's just them trying but to make it realistic. Did they? Then? And then no, 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 no. So, journalists so, found it funny. No, so so that that's like that's like beside the point. I don't mean that they did it as a joke. I mean I mean that that is a really standout example of a very small detail that doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things that was given a lot of time and attention unnecessarily. And that is by far that, that is not remotely alone in Red Dead Redemption Two. There are so many things in that game that are just so unnecessarily detailed, but don't I don't know that they reading the reviews of that game. I, I don't know that a lot of that work actually added added anything to games, right? And I, I maybe maybe I'm talking out my ass a little bit here, but there's kind of this, there's been this obsession with extreme detail and like ext- making things extremely realistic and beautiful um, in this generation. Red Dead Redemption 2 is an example of that. Many games are exa- examples of that. And I don't know that games are necessarily better for it. I mean, they, they look cool. I I enjoy seeing things that look like that. It's, it's entertaining, but it feels like the the amount of of human power that goes into making things like that versus the value that you ultimately get out of them as opposed to you know making games with interesting mechanics and creative gameplay and innovative ideas like it it doesn't quite work for me and i that that was just, that was just like one example that i pulled out but it's the one that sticks sticks out the most in my mind what rebecca's talking about is the is the is what they call the triple a difference you know because the thing is you can make really good looking games now quite cheaply using Unreal and Unity and these 500, 700 massive teams, they end up, the question is, you know, what do you do? You know, and these, these, there is these ridiculous touches. Like I'm a big fan of Sea of Thieves, you know, there's a, there's, if you walk away from a store, um, the characters who run the store will react in a different way, but you're walking away. So you can't see them. And I think that's, that's one of the, unless you happen to be following that person, you will never see these, these weird NPCs doing these actions. And it's just the, it's those, and these are the other touches that you don't know, most people don't notice them. And every now and again, you will do, maybe even years after playing the game for the first time. And that's the stuff that makes, oh, wow, look at the quality of that. And 
and uh, people are proud you know triple a developers are very understandably very proud of that um but um you do wonder if you know if we spent less time you know rendering uh spending all this time sort of animating these sort of things maybe people wouldn't be working quite so long um but it is there is though um often the thing that's um AAA companies saying well this is why you spend 60 dollars on our game and that one over there on steam is only a fiver um um because of the of the testicles i will also before before matt refutes this i will add one very small thing i realize i'm a massive hypocrite because i just lost my mind yesterday when animal crossing added sit animations so i get it well, actually, I'm so, a, uh, I'm a huge so this is this is this is a great time for me to come in because and, and the thing is i'm not going to refute anything because you know in matters of taste there are no absolutes right like everyone can think whatever they like about anything what i would say is that um i don't know like i don't I like Red Dead Redemption 2, um, and I don't see its devotion to realism as a... Okay, like let's take the crunch aspect away from it, right? I know that's difficult, but like, if we just talk about the game, the fact that it wants to be really realistic is not a problem in and of itself, because there are games that really are not realistic. Like, There's a game for everybody, right? There's a game for every taste. Its devotion to realism doesn't represent a, an issue, and like, just to quote from the... From Keza McDonald's Guardian review, um, she said it's a new high water mic for lifelike video game worlds, and it's called it a landmark, right? So there are people, and again, Keza is—I I know Keza from way back, and like she's she's the biggest Nintendo fan I know. So she likes games that are, go the complete opposite way from this. You know, it, the 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 two extremes exist. One of the great things about games is the diversity. Um, I guess I, I don't even know what I'm saying here because I'm not going to disagree with any of you because this is your lived experience of it. Um, I know that I bounced off it after about. 10 hours, maybe? I mean, it's a 100-hour game, so and, and I, I bloody hated it when Final Fantasy XIII came out and everyone said, oh, just, just get past the first 20 hours, and it's mm. really good. And I was like, well, that you can get the hell out. But, but I liked the first 10 hours. I just didn't love them like I loved Red Dead Redemption. And I went back to it, and it's a much more of a slow burn. And yes, the controls are not great. Um, I just think it's a brilliant game, Uh ultimately and actually weirdly because i'm playing assassin's creed valhalla at the moment and it borrows lots of ideas from red Dead Redemption 2 specifically you have like a little kind of homestead thing i was where, thinking about that just earlier as well i'm sorry go for it but but like but the difference is like the characters in red Dead Redemption 2 are absolutely brilliant so brilliantly drawn so well developed i mean if talking about kind of improvement of narrative in games like Red Dead Redemption 2 is masterful in that respect with all you know regardless of which button you press to go on your horse and you're not feeling great I do agree I will say but there are things that and again crunch aside Rockstar is amazing at certain things it it's uh it's one of one of the leading studios because it is able to extract so much I don't know again but we, we've had a conversation where the idea of, of everything being very very detailed is, is People can take issue with that, but some people really like it. I really like it, for example. But like, but in Assassin's Creed Valhalla, you'll go back, and the characters are very two-dimensional and so on. In Rockstar games, you don't get that. You get fully realized 3D human beings. I've never been more struck by in any game than Red Dead Redemption 2. So, to the people who might be inclined to play this, Marie, Batch, I, I don't know. You probably will never get past the controls, maybe, but like, there are riches in that game, I will say that, and... Um, I don't know, like, uh, there are, uh, again, like, read reviews, there are negative reviews, but this is like, it's a 97 Metacritic, so there are a lot of people that love it as that's well. That's the like thing. It, it, but it is what, but it, it takes work, and that's not to its, 
no, that's not a compliment to it. You know what I mean? Like I accept yeah. that, you know, it, it does not give it, it a best first impression for sure, for sure. But I think it's also that I had a lot of expectations for this game and I can't not acknowledge that as well. It's like on paper, I have no reason not to like this game. It is everything I like. It's the settings I absolutely adore. And I do like realistic games and stuff. So I think I had expectations and maybe it's my impatience again, but like it. it it's just way too long at the start and I felt like I was constantly waiting for it to, to, to get good. And just that I think that's the thing that didn't that didn't work for me because I was I was expecting to instantly be drawn to that world and I just and I just wasn't. Um so yeah, that's all I wanted to add, it, I guess. Go for it. It's it's the definition of slow for sure. It's definitely the definition of mm. slow. I'm kind of the same. I was I was fifteen hours in. And you can play like the first hour of Red Dead Redemption, the original, which I absolutely adored. Within the first hour, you are, you know, like John Marston is here to hunt down a former gang member and he tries and he's shot for dead and he's left on the uh, Bonnie McFarlane farm and he meets Bonnie and he's recouping and he's right now I need to meet more characters that can help me take down my former gang member. That's the first hour. 15 hours into Red Dead Redemption 2, I do not like any of the people I am camping with and the plot seems to be. <laughs> Oh, let's just hang out in the woods and, I don't know, rob people? That's just, <laughs> they, 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 it's, it's entirely me. And I have to say, like, similar to Marie, I just had very, very high expectations. But 15 hours in and I'm still waiting for it to get good, I just I just couldn't get on with it. Well, we'll have a, we'll have a, we'll have a podcast about Red Dead's narrative structure and we'll, we'll kind of get to the bottom of that batch. But yeah, Let's yeah. do it. <laughs> Chris, what is your disappointment? Titanfall 2. Uh, I could say Titan 4, Titan 4 2. I don't know if you remember at the um, end of um, the last generation, I remember it very well, Connect and Move had started to fade away. And we're into the game, that generation had a very bad case of sequelitis at the end of it. Um, lots of sequels, lots of Assassin's Creed, lots of Call of Duty. That was the trend. But the new generation promised new things and they were from the biggest studios that define that generation bungie was going to give us destiny um uh ubisoft were going to give us watchdogs and for me there was another exciting thing was the former team behind call of duty modern warfare was about to deliver us um titanfall and those those games all landed like within nine months of each other and um and they all did really really well watchdogs was a little overhyped and as a result of that, everyone was a bit disappointed in its launch. Um, and it did, you know, it did really well to begin with. The second game faltered, and even though it was very good, uh, but it still survived. You know, we just had a new Watch Dogs game. That game survived the generation. And Destiny is a similar story, not quite the same, but has a similar sort of journey where it started off very strongly and then faded away, and then it's sort of it's it's where it is now. But it's still here. Titanfall is not here. And what's really annoying is Titanfall got it right first time. So when they first came out, the game wasn't was 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 a, was a multiplayer only game they um, the developer who's independent developer teamed up with both ea and microsoft to launch that game it was one of the first big successes for xbox one and they didn't have very many and um and it was a great game but the expectations were kept in check and you just knew this was the this game was going to grow it was a big grower on it it's not going to take on call of duty in battlefield not yet maybe the third game maybe the fourth one but it's it's a franchise you felt like you felt like it was going somewhere Titanfall 2 is an excellent game. They got it right in terms of the sequel. It's an absolutely brilliant game. And I, yeah. to this day, I don't know why. I don't even know who's responsible for it. But somebody decided to release that game in between Battlefield and Call of Duty. And not just like... And I'm not talking... We're like, you know, one was released in September and released in November. It arrived in October. We're talking within like seven days of each other. And it died. Of course it did. 
And the, the, what's really disappointing about it, because the games have failed this generation, you know, we've talked about uh, Dishonored and Anthem, things that did, should deserve to do well. But what's disappointing about it is that we all, we all knew this was going to happen. In the interviews building up to that event, the amount of times I spoke to EA and Respawn and said, why are you releasing this? Why are you releasing this? And what are you doing? And their, their response was, and their, you always get this response, and it's, it's a stupid response. And if you're in the industry and you make this response, it's stupid, is that it's a different game. It has a slightly different appeal. Yes, it is a different game, but it's not, um, it's not a different audience. And that is where the, you know, you're not going to compete with Call of Duty. Not at that stage. It, I mean, it absolutely got snuffed out. I don't know why it happened. EA couldn't have recommended that release date. It should have come out in March. Wouldn't have done anywhere near as much as a Call of Duty, but would have done well enough. Picked up people who have perhaps bounced off COD at that point. And um, people maybe, you know, the World War, the, you know, yes, it was a futuristic shooter. Those that was fading away. It didn't deserve to do as badly as it did. And then Respawn bounced back. Respawn did Apex Legends. They did Star Wars. And they were very successful. One of the standout developers of the generation. But um, that game, that performance was a mistake. Uh, somebody somewhere, either it was hubris or they had to get it out for tax reasons. I don't know. But whatever happened, that game um, failed because not of anything wrong with the game. Because someone thought it was a good idea to put it out in Christmas in between its two biggest competitors that are just on another scale. No one's going to, everyone knows how it works. Like, no one's going to review, well, you might get review, but no one's going to do guides to your game when they're too busy doing guides to Call of Duty. No one's going to be actively covering a product that doesn't generate traffic. We live in a media world where traffic generate is, is, is what you know makes success makes success the games that aren't successful don't get covered youtubers first person shooter youtubers they're going to cover the games that are going to generate significant subscribers and attention they're not going to be covering titanfall too and not at that point and so it just i, I you feel like the people behind it were smarter than that um the publishers definitely smarter than that so what went wrong why that happened i don't know but it is by far the biggest disappointment that we should be ending this generation with one of those well we don't but that but the thing with that is that they can't be smarter than that because it happens. You know what I mean? Like you've got, you've got the end result, which suggests that they weren't. And, and to me, it just reeks of hubris. You know, it just reeks of exact hubris. I always thought actually it was probably some mistaken belief on the part of EA's upper management that they could kind of take Call of Duty down a peg or two with like a pincer movement kind of thing. Like you've got Battlefield over here, you've got Titanfall over there, and we can kind of take more, we can hurt Call of Duty. That's the only thing I could come up with that even made any level of sense. And I agree, that's a dumb thing to think, but still, there had to be some, I mean, like you said, maybe, maybe there's some weird legal thing, but uh, Titanfall 2 is a brilliant game as well I, I didn't play it at first and that's weird because I do, I do like shoot games I certainly have a lot of faith in the talent at Respawn I did really really like Titanfall but even I didn't get to that game until a year after it came out and it's fantastic like that yeah if you don't like that game you just don't like first person shooters and I know that we're not on a podcast necessarily people that love first person shooters but it's so inventive it's really witty it's loads of fun you know it's not it's not gritty in that way it's not dark in that way it just has so much going for and it's so approachable and yeah I and ultimately you saw a lot of those mechanics reappear in Apex Legends and people flocked to it I mean that's also important to remember that Apex Legends gameplay is Titanfall's gameplay there was no reason why it should have done what it did and it was purely just yeah, well, and I, I will say this a lot of people blamed EA actually at the time and after it wasn't EA it isn't an EA to use the wrong term first party game it was an EA partners title 
which means that EA published it, but it was actually, you know, it was owned and operated by Respawn. Respawn was an independent de- independent developer at the time. Um, if, if Respawn said they didn't want to release it then, they didn't have to, you know, the, the company. So I, I, I have to think, I mean, I can't, it feels like maybe the former Call of Duty developers felt that they had something now that they could, they could use to take down a, a Call of Duty. Maybe, I don't know. But uh, that's that's purely me guessing. There, there may be a, uh, a legitimate reason. Maybe they knew a deal was going through the acquisition. The EA acquired the studio after that, um, and they needed to get the game out at a certain point. I don't know, but that game—it's uh, just a shame. Like I just look at it, it was such a waste. Um, and um, uh, you know, uh, you know, I look at I look at all the games that were the new IPs that were going to define the generation. None of them did, but at least they're still here and still doing something new, like we've just seen with. Um, watchdogs um and um and uh but titanfall isn't and maybe one day it will come back and it will appeal to the 10 people that bought titanfall 2 and they'll all rush out and buy it and then get annoyed that no one else does again um well i think it's on it must be on game pass now right because yeah. of the, it uh, is i've downloaded it i'm ready to go hey give it a go like i i held off for a while it is a fantastic game you will not regret it rebecca final disappointment then go for it okay i won't take long um i think I think if you had asked me this question at the end of 2019, um, I, there would have been a few candidates. I think Ubisoft would have been in the running at the time. Um, I, I got into kind of, I, I, so I have not, I have not owned an Xbox or a PlayStation until now. I've mainly been a Nintendo person. Um, my, my limited experience with games on these other two consoles was through other people. Um, I played like, you know, some Skyrim I'd played, you know, but I played the Assassin's Creed series and I started with the first one and I played, you know, up through, uh, up through, you know, I played through two and brotherhood. Um, and I got to, I got to three and it, I didn't like it as much. I started falling off and I, I kept playing through Black Flag. And that that series, I feel, has gotten progressively less like what I want out of Assassin's Creed games. And so I started looking into some of Ubisoft's other franchises and I really liked like Child of Light. Um, I really enjoyed uh, Mario and Rabbids. That was really, really great. Um, but as I looked into games like Watch Dogs um, and kind of some of Ubisoft's other games, they it felt like a lot of, it felt like, over the last several years, the company has been increasingly focusing on a small handful of big AAA franchises. Um, well, they're all AAA of of like kind of big money making franchises, and those games have been gradually kind of becoming more and more of the same kind of game. Um, and so, I think it would have been in the running if you'd asked me at the end of 2019 solely for that, just because I felt like Assassin's Creed had kind of lost its original assassin soul, um, and they had kind of you know moved away from the really interesting stuff they were doing again with like Child of Light um, and some of like the Rayman games. They haven't had a new one in a really long time, um, so things like that. But this year really, really sealed it for Ubisoft, didn't it? Um, because they we found out um, about this internal culture that goes beyond an individual Ubisoft studio. It goes beyond one single person. It is, we have seen that this culture of being, of, of sexism and sexual harassment and abusive behavior on the part of management specifically targeted towards women. It has just pervaded this entire company and it has been facilitated and allowed by the people at the very top of it. And Ubisoft has had to undergo a reckoning and the signs are not promising that I mean I mean there there are some good things that are being done they are obviously removing some people who were just egregiously bad but you know reading some of these reports um it, it does not sound like Ubisoft is 
fully doing everything it needs to do to eradicate this culture. It sounds like they're trying to, you know, get rid of some of the most high profile offenders and then just keep keep on going as they have before. Um, when you read kind of like how the HR departments um, are hand handling this, like it was a, a liberation or somebody had like a really, really depressing report about how that was going. Um, and yeah, I think I think that absolutely sealed it for me. And it also explained a lot of things. It explained why I had been so frustrated over the years about, you know, desperately wanting a, a really good woman protagonist at the forefront of a game, not just as a choice, uh, but specifically of an Assassin's Creed game, like someone who was, you know, very deliberately developed as a woman character um, in the Assassin's Creed series. And we found out, oh, Ubisoft just doesn't think women sell. Um, and that's, you know, kind of a part of this whole larger culture that has just been that has just been festering at the company over the years and so it's it's everything from and, and you can you can even look at it too because you see that you know all these editorial decisions for all these major games have been in the hands of you know a, a small handful of very powerful people who have also been kind of terrible individuals and you find out that a lot of the there are there's probably a lot of creativity um within ubisoft's studios that has been stifled over the years because of this this culture of men pushing women around and it's just it's just deeply disappointing it is just it is so hurtful and so frustrating and my my heart goes out to everybody affected by that and everyone who continues to be affected by that and i i just i can't i don't know if i'll ever be able to look at ubisoft the same again and i i don't really have any faith that they're going to really fundamentally address the problem in a way that will actually make that studio a better like a better place to work at the core so I'm going to agree with you and back that up on some of the Assassin's Creed points. Um, I recently played Assassin's Creed Liberation, which is the only one with a female protagonist all the way through without a male protagonist. And Aveline is by far and away the best or one of the best characters that I've encountered in the series. And it's it's a shame it was just a Vita spin-off game rather than a mainstay title because like just her character as, you know, she's a a lady so she's a person of the kind of the nobility but then she's also an assassin and then she can disguise herself as a slave because it kind of touches on the you know the racism inherent to the the slave trade in the 1700s and then the other one and i've, I've heard this from someone involved with assassin's creed origins um aya barrett Bayek's wife was it was reported I've, I've heard, reported. it was reported right. it was a, it was a news story yeah Sorry, sorry. Okay, but, 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 but hearing that then backed up like something that I'd heard from someone, like that the idea that Bayek was going to be killed off and Aya was going to be the first assassin and the one who sets up the creed, and indeed, like the 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 comic books that kind of follow Origins show her leading the start of the Assassin's Creed in Rome. I was like, that would have been so much more of an interesting game, and it's ridiculous that they don't invest in these characters and just just under this bizarre belief that men don't want to play as girls. Like I, I also don't think we should necessarily. I, I don't disagree with anything that's been said, but I don't think we should. Um, we should put to one side the fact that Bayek is a Muslim person of color, and no. that is very rare in games as well. Like, so to frame it like that, yeah. I mean, it, it's. Not, I, I think in that example, it's not that simple. Like that. That in itself is a progressive choice in the world of AAA games. So the fact it's not a woman, like that. I mean, of course, it would be. 
I don't know. Like, for me, they're kind of Cassandra might be a better example, I think, right? Because because there there was really no reason to have that choice in the first place. Cassandra was far the better representation of that character. And according to the reports, was intended to be the sole protagonist. Um, Yeah. Yeah, And you can feel it. Yeah. 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 You can feel it. And it's got so much more behind it. Yeah. Absolutely. Disappointment sums it up because actually, I didn't think Ubisoft were that bad this generation. I never really liked Ubisoft's open world. As in the as a game maker, I don't really. I've never really cared about their open world games. I never really cared about Assassin's Creed and Far Cry. They do feel like they're data driven games. Like people like big open world games. Let's make more open world games. You know, they like male protagonists. Let's have male protagonists. You know, it feels like games that they've looked at what's done well and they've gone, let's make that more. Let's just do more of that. They've always felt like that. You know, those sort of Ubisoft games. But I've always enjoyed um, Ubisoft simply because of that. When, when they get whimsical, when they do a um, even going all the way far back to Beyond Good and Evil, or, or a, even when they even things that are big license games like South Park or Steep or uh, also Hyperscape is the new one, and there's all these games. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but just there's, there's all these examples. Yeah, whether they're good or not, it's is you know it's Ubisoft style. Mario plus Rabbits, it's it's bonkers, um, and um, Red Steel. These games that throughout the last you know Ubisoft, I'm not actually that I'm not a map, I don't love that many Ubisoft games. Um, but uh, uh, I've always felt that uh, I've always enjoyed them and I've always seemed so bloody lovely. Like I've, I've interviewed, I, I, not so much um, the Montreal heads, I've never necessarily got on with them very much, but the Eve Guillemots and the, um, you know, there was a moment, remember it was only a couple of years ago when Eve Guillemot was fighting off a takeover, a, you know, and, and they thought that this may go one way or another. And E3, all of the Ubisoft staff came on stage and went around him. And it was a lovely moment. You thought this, this company feels for a ginormous, massive corporate com- company that this is, it feels like a family. And that's why I'm disappointed. I'm gutted. Not, not the only, that's not the reason why I'm disappointed, but it's one of the reasons why I, it's so disappointing to feel that that wasn't true. That, that what we were seeing wasn't reflective of this, you know, this perception that I had of Ubisoft for so long wasn't a real perception at all um it was it was incorrect and it was really really sad and i almost don't i didn't want it to be true i thought oh i hope it's just a couple of bad apples but it's just it seemed there's more and there's more and there's more and i'm just and it's just really sad um and and horrible and all the adjectives it's just um this company and i have to say i've never really liked ubisoft's big games it never bothered me that they were all a bit you know samey and formulaic and generic it's just but i'm just such a shame that it's yeah that was like a minor problem kind of i think that would have sat alongside bioware for me if you had asked me a year ago would have been like yeah that's that's not i don't like assassin's creed anymore that's really basically it but yeah no this year was just just poop yeah i'm not gonna add a lot to what everyone just said because i agree with absolutely everything and it has been for me as well a massive disappointment i've always had that almost sense of like misplaced pride for Ubisoft because they're a French company and this year has been like crushing and I've been like exactly what Chris just said so I'm not going to actually add to it but yeah that that when that company is not what you thought it was and even though there were signs where you could see that there was definitely something going wrong there but um yeah and I think to add as well to what Rebecca said I think the whole me too movement in the games industry and how it's been tackled and approached has been frankly appalling and uh i guess you can put that into the disappointment list as well in the sense in the sense that it is not being addressed thoroughly yeah exactly like it's been it's been there and people know it's there and nothing has been done about it and it comes and goes and yeah 
Anyway, that's an entire different debate, I guess, and we don't. I know we ha we don't have much time left, so I don't want to get into it. But yeah, we we all know it's been pretty bad, and the industry is not doing enough to actually do something to prevent women from being harassed. And yeah. Okay, we round out this week's show uh, bumper edition of the podcast with our favourite games of the generation and in somewhat of a hard turn but because we were kind of ribbing you behind the music there uh, Marie we're going to pass to you for your favourite game because I, I think it is important to kind of look at some positives at least uh, what is your favourite game of the generation? Um, so despite everything we just said about Ubisoft, uh, it just so happens that one of my favorite games this generation is a Ubisoft game, and that's Assassin's Creed Odyssey, uh, because of the fantastic performance that the character of Cassandra is. Um, it almost felt like the first time I was properly represented in a game. She's nuanced, and she's bloody fantastic, and she's also tough and all sorts of things that don't I don't feel are represented um, a lot in games when you're a woman um, and the world itself in the game is just feels fully realized and the culture is well represented and all sorts of like it's not a perfect game it has a lot of things that are not perfect but I don't know I have like a personal connection to that game I just can't stop playing it every time I think about what to play I'm almost tempted to all, always go back to Assassin's Creed Odyssey I just love it and it's a different argument to make after what we just said but that's a fact that's why I had prepared other games too obviously God of War is one of them too but I'm not going to repeat everything I said earlier because a lot of the reason why I think it's an important game are also the reasons why I love this game um so yeah God of War Assassin's Creed Odyssey and I'm sorry, I know we said one game, but I can't. Um, I'm just going to mention, because I've talked about AAA and not really about indies, and I play a lot of indie games, so I just wanted to mention What Remains of Edit Finch, because it is one of my favorite games this generation as well, because it broke me into a million pieces, and it's absolutely fantastic. And like I've tried to put into words many times how I feel about What Remains of Edit Finch, but it's just, I can't. It's, I'll never be able to make it justice. It's just incredible i don't think any game has portrayed like mental health issues this like what can what they can feel like as well as this game has and it's just great and it's always for people who've never really played video games and you feel like video games is only first person shooters i've always tell them to play what remains of edit finish and then they understand what video games can be and i just think it's a fantastic game you spent longer describing second place than first place though marie so should we just <laughs> i'm sorry your favorite game is what remains of edit finish. i don't know what my it's honestly impossible because like god of war is obviously so up there but honestly i can't yeah. not mention odyssey it's impossible to pick one yeah, odyssey is a fantastic it. game for sure i just wanted to quickly say because i'm playing valhalla at the moment and actually, you can kind of feel Ubisoft edging towards just making a female protagonist the only character, the only protagonist in Assassin's Creed game. Because certain things Valhalla does, it, it makes the choice between male and female lean further to the female side. It's an interesting progression there, but you can just kind of feel them resisting doing it ultimately, right? But we'll see what happens in the future. But yeah. I just wanted to add to Marie talking about feeling really represented in a game. I... 
I, I felt that too. And I don't, I don't really, there's not really an avenue for me to ever talk about this, um, you know, as a part of GI, but I'm bi. And that is not something that I have gotten to explore much in my life for various personal circumstances. And so a lot of my exploration of being bisexual has been through video games. Um, and Assassin's Creed Odyssey, I, I haven't finished it, but I've been playing it. And it, playing as Cassandra and having romance options available to me with both men and women has been absolutely fantastic for being able to sort of explore that and think about it and consider that for me as a person and having having a, such a wonderfully wonderfully written and wonderfully acted um queer woman protagonist was just absolutely fantastic i love it i say i'm playing um, valhalla now and having had a hit and miss relationship with origins because it wasn't assassin's creedy enough for me i'm really enjoying valhalla which is making me think i need to go and play odyssey i feel you like i missed to. out now you yeah who wants to go it's, next then who's got a favorite game i'll go next so i'm trying to make mine quick um i so I, as i said before i've really only played switch and a lot of like small cute indie games on pc for the majority of this generation but i did i, I didn't play it but i watched my partner at a t at the time play all the way through um near automata and i think that is one of the most incredible games i have ever witnessed it is fantastically odd the music is just absolutely beautiful it, it sticks in your head and it's it, it's just it's just weird and ethereal at times but the the way the game handles its its multiple endings um and kind of does this like weird meta game at the end and shifts with your ex shifts your expectations for what it's going to do and what it's going to be and what it's going to be about um alongside it's just absolutely wonderful exploration of what it means to be a human being and what it means to take care of and protect other people um it, it's just it's absolutely fantastic from front to back and i constantly look at this game and think you know I've, I've already seen this this game in its entirety but i really just desperately want to play through it myself and i keep i keep being tempted that direction even though i already know how it ends um so that's not a long explanation but i i love near automata i think it's absolutely phenomenal and beautiful and uh it's really good it is also the game that platinum games uh attributes its continued survival to as well which is another reason to, to get behind it I think because Platinum Games is a fantastic developer I think it's another developer that's had a bunch of games that didn't sell well, as quite as well as they deserve to that's going back about 10 years now but uh, Nier Automata has been been kind of touted as the game that, that, that saved the studio and it, it's well worth it as well again I think I'm not sure if it's still on Game Pass but it certainly was on Game Pass that's how I played it and I'm not normally a fan of that kind of game I mean the, the, the kind of the action but there's so much underneath it there's so many ideas at play it's so playful with how it how it uh, implements many of its systems that, um yeah it's, it's a difficult one to get out of your head for sure chris i have a fairly shrewd idea that i might know what your game of the generation <laughs> is um well i was very tempted to sort of fail expectations and go resident evil 7 because i love the fact that capcom looked at what made the last two resident evil games really successful which is the action gameplay commercially successful but critically you know and fan wise pretty disappointing and they went you know what sod it we're gonna go all the way with horror on the next one a genre that was apparently dead and then we're gonna make it and they made it hugely successful and it's brilliant and it's not lazy and it's really clever and they've done one and resident evil's back now and it looks like there's a game out every single year for the next decade 
and um, I think uh, that's a wonderful story. But obviously, it's Sea of Thieves. Oh, what um, a surprise! Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, it's weird. I didn't. I, I'm, it's, it's, <laughs> no, that's the thing. I'm not got too much to say because I've spoken about it so many times. I've done. I did a piece earlier in this year about it, and I did a piece late last year about it. And it's sort of like I think. I think. I think. I I'm not that into big action. RPG online games that require you basically to play for hundreds of hours, right? You know, I love the idea of a social connected game where I can go in and hang out with my mates, but I like the idea of being able to do it obsessively for two weeks and then not do it for seven months and then go back to it and do it for two weeks and not, and it's fine, right? I'm not, their players that I'm playing with aren't any better than me. Nothing's really changed. That's what Sea of Thieves is. There is no vertical progression in Sea of Thieves. And I know that's some of the things that actually the hardcore fans really struggle with, but I love it. It, it really it speaks to me. And of course, the game arrived at a very horrible time in my life. Um, probably the darkest. I, I can't. I, I was so. Uh, my daughter died shortly after being born, and um, I didn't. I was utter despair. And then all I could do was play video games. And then one day, my brother said, "Do you want to play Sea of Thieves?" And I got on Sea of Thieves. And my two other friends who was on Xbox Live at the time, they came in with me. And for the first time in weeks and weeks and weeks, I laughed over a very over my brother making a joke about being a pop-up pirate in a barrel. And um, and it's it's a silly game. <laughs> it's a silly game. And um, and I've played that pretty. I don't say non-stop. I actually haven't played it for months now. But um, I've played it on and off consistently this whole generation. It's a wonderful comeback story for Rare as well, a studio that's been quite maligned over the. The last, if you hope for Bioware coming back, there's the rare is an example of a studio that can make a comeback, and um, and it got me through a very difficult time. It it, it it suits the sort of person I am and the games I play. It's very silly. I also love the fact that it's a ridiculously you see, I, I, no other nobody. It's it's a massive must be millions and millions, hundreds of millions, if not dollars spent on making this game, and it's a pirate game, shared world. I just it feels like hugely reckless almost is a triple a product and i'm just delighted it exists and it's a wonderful game and i love it and um yeah but i've spoken about it a lot in the past and so there's no need to dwell yeah i think it's what i want it's one i'm absolutely fascinated by but i don't really have people that would play it with me necessarily like i but I, from what i understand and maybe chris you could correct me on this because i'm not a big multiplayer player i mean is it something that just ha you have to have I mean, you talk about it being a of an avenue for social connection for you at a very important time do you need to have that social aspect um, the, the, the game the, the game does let you play on your own you can have your own sloop it's what they call two-person ship um uh, maximum two people can be on that ship and you can play the game fine with it um but i you're not getting the sea of thieves experience absolutely not you know you need two people if two people is fun three people is is a great number as well um three or four four is perfect but um, so threes, you know, often I'm only playing with three people and that's brilliant. Sometimes I play with two and that's still fun. Um, but it, it's a bit like, you know, the difference between meeting up with you. With, it feels like meeting up with two mates, three mates. If it's that experience. But on your own, it, it can be, you know, sailing is a joy when you're when you've got four the three other people helping you do it. And when you're doing it on your own, it, it, they have introduced elements to it that make it a little bit more um, engaging for single players. But, but it is a game that's best played with other people, um, without a doubt. That's what it's about. Matt, I'm going to bring this full circle and let and finish with you. So I'll, I'll squeeze mine in here. Uh, mine is Hitman, the 2016, the first season. Um, 
I have to confess, I've only played this for the first time this year, um, and I'm not going to deny part of this is it basically lets me be James Bond. So um, obviously, <laughs> I was excited about IO Interactive, but it's it's more than that. Genuinely, it's I have had a great problem this year, this generation with length. Uh, the reason I have not played Odyssey is because it is a hundred hours long, and to get and you can't just blitz through the main story missions. You have to grind and do XP and side quests and stuff in order to level up your character, in order to be allowed to play the next section. And I just do not have time for that. Case in point, as much as I say I would love to play Odyssey, uh, it's taken me a full week to leave Norway um, in Valhalla, and even <laughs> then, that is, that's five hours spread across just over a week. That is how little game time I've got. So to play Hitman where you can do a mission in 20 minutes or you can spend an hour diving into it and following you know, like all these different kind of ways of you know of killing people and kind of the the exploring the different options in that level you can kind of adapt it to what you want and there's only five six missions um and then you're done that's it that's the game done so by all in all Technically, if you're just counting this as right from beginning to end, this is like a five to seven hour game. And most people would probably argue, well, that's that's not worth my money. But you can go back and replay the replayability of each mission. There are so, so many different ways to assassinate your targets. There are so many different scenarios you can get into. And whereas the previous Hitman games, you had to spend friggin' hours kind of observing everyone's movement patterns and trying to you know, find these different opportunities. Now there's this lovely system called opportunities where you just you go into the menu, you find the type of assassination you want to perform, and it gives you a hint or kind of guides you to that. And yes, I, I know fans will be like, well, that's taken away the challenge. It's like, I don't have time for challenge. I just want to be cool. Um, so, <laughs> and then you know, on top of that, you've got all the the elusive targets and the life service stuff they've done to kind of spruce up each each level. You've got people who have created their own contracts and it means that every time you go in, yes, they are the same. If you're focusing on the main five missions, so, you know, um, Paris, Italy, Thailand, uh, Colorado and Japan, that's only five levels, as it were. That's five maps that are that theoretically are the same every time, but they're not. Every time you play them, they feel different if you do a different if you take a different route, if you take a different approach, it can feel like a completely different game, depending on how you approach it. And I think in the time when the industry is pushing and pushing for longer, more bloated games with so much stuff to do in the interest of getting you to play more, I'd love to see more games focus on providing a short experience that if that's all you want, good job done, but there's depth there. There's more stuff that you can go back and find if you so choose. That's why I'm going for Hitman. Yeah, I, I, I'll just chime in because this was like my second place for game for my favorite game of the generation. Um, particularly because if you, I so I played it. I played some of it when it was first released. Um, other things interrupted, kind of personal life stuff interrupted. But this, this game was conceived as an episodic series. Now I. I wouldn't like to say whether anything had had like the season pass idea before Hitman did, but I feel like it was quite early to the table with that, where each episode was released. I think they were a few months apart, like in a, like a TV series, effectively. And the elusive targets idea was like you release the level and then you drop elusive targets into that map and you return to it and people go through it in different ways. And the next one would drop. 
<clears throat> and it's a very innovative idea. I mean, I, I talked to, to Hannah Seifert, the, the head of IO Interactive, um, in 2015 about this. And again, like five years is quite a long time in this particular space, in the online multiplayer space. And it just seems so bold and so brave and so interesting. And ultimately, though, it didn't quite work commercially, I don't think, because Hitman 2 was released as a regular AAA game. But I think what, what James says is great. Every, every Hitman level has it's, it's like a, a little game unto itself um, and it's so rich and detailed and it's like you know it, it's you know there's this idea of like the comedian's comedian or the musician's musician like this is like the game designer's game design um hitman has been as long as i've been listening to game design podcasts hitman blood money particularly has been held up as like one of the pinnacles of the, of the art and like it, it's it's really fascinating if you just want to kind of dig in and and see how complex complexly considered a level can be like hitman is the game to do it in so yeah just chime with batch there matt bring our epic podcast to a close what is your favorite game of the generation yeah well unfortunately it's a game we spent i've already given my feelings on it it's got to be god of war um i it was between god of war hitman 2016 and uh, the witcher 3 I, I, I spent a lot of time playing the witcher 3 and i guess for similar reasons like I like God of War more, but the fact the CD project has not covered itself in glory in terms of its culture didn't exactly help the thing. Whereas I feel like it's there's no such complications with God of War, but it is just like a jewel-like uh, example of what AAA games can be, and AAA games get a bad rap. I, mean, I will say actually as well that if if this were like just a favorite game to last seven years, I think all of our choices would be slightly different. If, it, if the Switch was involved, it would probably be all of you talking about Zelda Breath of the Wild, and I'd just like want to like hang up immediately and, and go and talk to somebody else. But not only because I've not played it, but um, but you know, but mine would probably be you know like Oberdin or something like that. You know, but but th- we're talking about console games here, and console games, the indie thing has come from PC. For me, God of War is is a paragon of what console games have always been about in many ways. They've been about this blockbuster thing, but it does it with so much more intelligence and so much more heart, so much more nuance than I've ever, ever seen in a game of this kind. And I feel it's really, and I hate to kind of speak of of a, of a team member who's no longer with us, but Hayden uh, Taylor, a former team member of, of gamesindustry.biz, um, this is, I think he, he, it would be lovely for him to be on the podcast now for many reasons, but specifically for the reason that I think he had a really interesting experience with God of War of having only the expectation of what God of War was and coming to it and seeing what God of War is and being absolutely floored by what he found. And yeah, I think it gives me, you know, in a, yeah... In a, in, in a time when you still have, you know, FIFA being released every year, Call of Duty being released every year. I like Assassin's Creed, don't get me wrong. Another Assassin's Creed, Battlefield will come next year. I think what, what Sony has really shown this generation is, is how interesting and emotive and perfectly wrought and designed AAA games still can be. Um, it's, yeah... There's, I don't think there's really anything wrong with God of War. And I, I even even on a AAA level, I think the people that make it come through as well, which I, I don't think you can really ever say that about AAA games, maybe outside of Hitman. But yeah, so that's, that's definitely my choice for Game of the Generation because it's like top five of all time, in my opinion. So, 
That is definitely all we have time for this week. Thank you so much for bearing with us on this fairly <laughs> lengthy episode. But to be fair, we're trying to analyse the last seven years under three different yeah. lenses. So I Every think we've done podcast well is allowed an indulgent episode. I listen to enough podcasts to know that two-hour episodes happen sometimes. So yeah, <laughs> I think we're fine. Put it in one. If you are a glutton for punishment and you want more Games and Street Obbies podcasts, please do go back through the feed and listen to previous episodes. Um, you can find them on all podcasting platforms of choice. Be sure to check out our spin-off. So we've got the Game Developers Playlist. We've had two episodes this month, uh, one on Metal Gear Solid 5, one on Full Throttle, and we've had the five games of Mikhail Kasurinan from uh, Remedy. He was talking about uh, five games from his career, including Anne and Wake, Control, Quantum Break, and I won't do the other two. You should just go, just go and listen to it. In the meantime, go to Game Games for more news, insight, and analysis into the world behind video games. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> oh Lord! I mean, it's probably a really good thing that Brendan couldn't make it right. Otherwise, <laughs> it'd be two and a half hours deep right now. But yeah. <laughs>